Welcome to Overheard in the Saxby, the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law public lecture podcast. This series includes audio recordings of lectures, events, symposiums, and seminars that provide insight into the most important legal issues of the day. To learn more about the college and its vibrant community of scholars and gifted students, please visit us online at moritzlaw.osu.edu. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the Ohio Data Protection Act, also known as ODPA. We are joined by Professor Dennis D. Hirsch, Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Program on Data and Governance at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Also, Brian Ray, the Professor Alan Miles and Judge Beatty Willis Rubin, Professor of Law and the Director of the Center for Cybersecurity and Privacy Protection at Cleveland State University. Also joining us is Alonzo Barber, a senior commercial attorney supporting Microsoft U.S. Enterprise Global Sales Organization. For those of you who are not aware, the ODPA came into force on November 2nd, 2018. The act seeks to improve cybersecurity among Ohio businesses. It does so by allowing those businesses that can demonstrate that they have implemented a qualifying cybersecurity program to assert an affirmative defense against tort actions arising from data breach. The idea is that the prospect of the affirmative defense will incentivize companies to improve their cybersecurity programs. In this podcast, Alonzo Barber and Professors Hirsch and Ray will introduce the ODPA and explore the questions that it raises. Dennis, I want to start with you. In my role within Microsoft, I frequently have conversations with customers about their concerns around data privacy, compliance, and security. Could you give a short synopsis of the Ohio Data Protection Act and, and let the listeners know how this legislation is a little different, what may be out there already? Sure. I wanted to say, first of all, thanks to you, Alonzo, and to Microsoft for supporting the production of the white paper, uh, which allowed my program and Brian's to do that work. So we appreciate that. When most people think of cybersecurity law, they think of data breach notification laws. We're all quite familiar with that. You know, if a company suffers a data breach, they have to notify the people affected by the data breach. And that is the dominant form of cybersecurity law in Ohio has a data breach notification law like. I think of those as kind of the first generation of uh, cybersecurity laws. And what we're starting to see now is a second generation of cybersecurity laws that are kind of layered on top of those data breach notification laws. Those second generation laws are taking a variety of forms. And Ohio has done something innovative in creating a kind of unique type of second generation cybersecurity law. But what you look, what you see when you look around the country, there are some state cybersecurity laws that set minimum cybersecurity standards for companies, right? And they will define to some extent what companies need to do to achieve that minimum standard. And then there will be enforcement of that. So that's a pretty straightforward type of law. You see laws like that, second generation laws like that in New York and in Massachusetts. Some other state laws create a private right of action for those affected by a data security breach. For example, people who suffer identity theft or other types of inconvenience or damage. And so the California Consumer Privacy Act, which was just passed last year, is, an, is a statute of that type. And it creates a private right of action for people affected by a data security breach, and they can get damages of up to $750. Now, when you're thinking about the fact that 
mil a million or millions of people may be affected, you start talking about some really large numbers. Of course, what California is trying to do there is create an incentive for companies to take a proper level of precaution with respect to their cybersecurity efforts and make the proper investments in it. The Ohio law is also trying to create an incentive for companies to make proper investments in cybersecurity, but it's going about it a very different way. If we can think of the California law with its private right of action as a kind of a stick, if you will, to incentivize this, Ohio uses a carrot approach. And the carrot takes the form of a, an affirmative defense to tort actions arriving out of a data breach. So if a company is a defendant in a tort action arising out of a data breach and can show that it meets the terms of the Ohio Data Protection Act, this new law, then it gets an affirmative defense against those tort actions that it can assert in court. So what does it have to do to get the affirmative defense? Well, it has to implement a good cybersecurity program. And the statute defines that as a cybersecurity program that reasonably conforms to one of 10 listed industry standard cybersecurity frameworks. So by giving companies a affirmative defense, if they reasonably conform to one of these industry standards, the statute is trying to incentivize them to make the investments to conform to one of those 10 industry standards. And this law is applicable to any tort action arising out of a data breach that is brought in a court in Ohio or is brought under Ohio law in a court outside of the state. So that's just kind of a basic overview of what the statute basically does and how it differs from other state cybersecurity laws. Right. Well, thank you. And again, the white paper is uh, entitled Promoting Better Cybersecurity, an Analysis of the Ohio Data Protection Act. I've read it. It's an interesting piece of, uh, of literature. And I understand there's an interesting kind of background around that. And Brian, you were involved a little bit with the, uh, as I understand, some of the uh, legislative history around and formation around the uh, Ohio Data Protection Act. And I know this uh, mention of this concept of Cyber Ohio. Would you mind sharing some words about kind of the, the background of how the legislation got started and maybe some of the other kind of inner workings of the legislation that the users might be interested in? Sure. And uh, I'd like to add my thanks to Microsoft for funding the project. Um, it was a lot of fun and, and we actually learned a lot. Really interesting to go back and look and try to understand how a law works that you were participated in drafting because you, you think about it from one perspective and then when it's out and, and you're, you're thinking about it from another and you're getting feedback, uh, it's, it gets pretty interesting. So as you mentioned, Cyber Ohio uh, is, a, is an advisory board that was created by then Attorney General Mike DeWine. He, he recently was elected governor, and it was one of his uh, signature priorities in his tenure as Attorney General. He recognized that there was a real need. Dennis mentioned Ohio was part of or is part of uh, the second wave of states reexamining what they ought to do following the sort of basic data breach laws. Um, and given that it was a Republican administration, um, there was a desire to try to do something different, as Dennis mentioned. And so um, the Cyber Ohio Advisory Board was comprised of um, people from industry, uh, large companies, small companies, um, people from the cybersecurity sector, as well as some academics like myself, had three major components to it. Uh, one was an education effort around cybersecurity. And so they, we, they created a series of uh, educational offerings that they posted on the website. 
They also had a kind of roadshow where they go around and give some real basic tips on cybersecurity, how to get started on a good program. Uh, the second piece was a an annual event targeted at mid-sized enterprises, um, which they held uh, for three years and which we hosted one of the years. And then the, the last piece, which I think the Attorney General viewed as the most significant, was a subcommittee that was going to look at potential legislation. And it was, it was fairly open-ended, but the challenge that was posed to us was, well, let's see if we can do something different. Let's see if we can do something that doesn't add a direct regulatory obligation, but instead creates a different kind of incentive. And so that's what, uh, what became the Ohio Data Protection Act. Um, and we, we took about, I don't know, at least two, two and a half years. Uh, it was a mix of um, representatives from the cybersecurity industry, small and large businesses. Uh, and we had some good technical experts on the in the group who were able to advise us on you know sort of what it would mean operationally from um, from the technical side as well as legally uh, how to create this kind of incentive. So we settled on this um, on this framework. And um, just to amplify a little bit on Dennis's description of it, there are sort of two pieces, maybe three, you could say, to the frameworks. There's a set of frameworks that are that come from um, federal regulatory frameworks. So the idea there was if you're already in a heavily regulated industry that has a specific cybersecurity framework that you need to adhere to anyways, we wanted you to be able to take advantage of that and maybe do uh, only a few more modest things to be able to comply. Mm -hmm. uh, and then for everyone else, there's a set of the general industry frameworks that are out there that are well recognized as providing a set of standards uh, that should put you on a good footing to have a robust cybersecurity program. I mentioned there's this third piece, which is related to payment cards. Uh, and that, because the payment card regulation that's out there is fairly focused in scope, the decision was made, well, if you're complying with that anyways, if you have a breach related to payment card data, you have to demonstrate you were conforming to that, but you also have to demonstrate that you're conforming to one of these industry frameworks. Right. I see, I hear a lot of terms that you, you know, both you, um, Ryan, you and right. Dennis have mentioned around kind of how the, the law is constructed, maybe even some of the background behind it. That's, that's, that's very helpful. But for the listeners out there, Brian, if you could maybe give a, a short synopsis, do they comply with the law or they take it? I mean, I think Dennis used kind of a description of maybe taking advantage of the benefits. How would you kind of advise users out there? How, how does one go about complying, taking advantage of this type of legislation? Sure. So to start, the, the basic process that you would do to prepare yourself to take advantage of the affirmative defense is what you would already be doing if you were engaged in an effort to put yourself in a robust cybersecurity posture. And of course, there are really good reasons to do that outside of the potential being able to assert this defense in litigation. And there, you know, there are good business reasons. Of course, if you're already being regulated, you need to demonstrate that anyway. So this, again, was designed to you know, interface nicely with that set of incentives um, already. Um, at the end of the day, what you get as a result of the law is an affirmative defense that you assert in potential litigation. And mm -hmm. so how and whether that will, how, how exactly that will play out, you know, remains to be seen in court. But as a matter of sort of business practice and thinking about how to set yourself up to take advantage of it in potential litigation, again, you're going to go through what um, the industry calls a cybersecurity risk assessment. Mm -hmm. You can often do that on your own if you've got sufficient resources, if you've got technical personnel uh, that are versed in these frameworks, uh, which many companies do. Alternatively, there are, there's a lot of companies out there, both security firms and law firms, who have the expertise to do, to do these analyses for you. Uh, and one of the things we mentioned in the white paper is that smaller, mid-sized enterprises may well not have the internal expertise and may want to look um, to some external partners to do that. But in essence, you're going to do what you would do for 
for a cybersecurity program anyways. If you don't have one, you'll be starting from scratch. Right. It might be a little more effort intensive. If you've already if you already have one, then it's a matter of now if you haven't already been using one of these frameworks, trying to take a look back and see if how well you map one of these frameworks and whether there might be some uh, additional measures you need to take uh, to meet them, right? Now, these frameworks are standards, not rules. And so there's always, um, there are always choices to be made. There's choices about what your risk appetite is, what, how, how, how risky you think the data is that you hold, mm -hmm. which is partly uh, dictated by the statute, but partly dictated by your sense uh, of how much you have and how vulnerable it might be. And so it's not as if there's a prescriptive set of check the box things to do. It's more of a risk analysis around here are the things I know I have that I might need to do things about. Here are the relative risk levels. Here are the range of options. Because of course, cybersecurity, um, you know, there are a range of things you can do. Uh, and then, of course, there's an obligation under the law and under most of these frameworks to, to make sure that that compliance is live and so that you don't just put the program in place and then put it on a shelf. Uh, you have to make sure that you're continually updating and paying attention to you know, new threats as they come along. So question for each of you, um, and, and uh, taking this door, uh, Dennis, if you wouldn't mind taking the, this first one, and, and Brian, please chime in on the second or, or add color to it. The first question for our listeners that I want to make sure I clarify is, Maybe out there is who actually can take advantage of this law? Does it have to be a business based in Ohio? Do they have to have, you know, kind of a nexus in Ohio? To your um, kind of advice or, or knowledge of, of how the legislation is constructed, who actually can take advantage of the law? That's, that's my first question. So I would say that any defendant in a data breach action where the case is brought in an Ohio court or under Ohio law can take advantage of this law. That's my understanding. Does that make sense to you, Brian? That's correct. And so the law prescribes the scope of it as uh, any action brought in Ohio courts or any action brought under Ohio law. So that, that, that second piece extends it slightly potentially outside of Ohio if you're in a situation where a court determines that Ohio tort law, because that's limited to tort actions, applied in a data breach action. That's right. Right. And then I guess my, then my second question, somewhat related to that, do you have a sense of either you have a sense of who this law, what sort of profile of company or business that would be best optimized for um, kind of take advantage of this law? Or is it kind of, uh, you know, meant to kind of cover the entire spectrum? So sophist large, sophisticated companies, most of them already have cybersecurity programs in place, and hopefully they are good cybersecurity programs that would not subject them to a negligent suit in tort. The same cannot be said for small or medium-sized businesses. So, and yet, small and medium-sized businesses are subject to cybersecurity attacks much as large ones are. More than 67% of small and medium-sized businesses experienced a cyber attack in the past year, yet only 20 8%, according to a study, have highly effective systems to protect against such attacks. So I think, and Brian can clarify on this because he was more, he was involved in, in the process that led to the statute, but I think part of what the statute is trying to do is really geared towards small and medium-sized businesses, get their attention to this issue, get them involved, um, give them incentives to uh, invest more and think more about how to put good cybersecurity protections in place, provide them with models, you know, these frameworks that, that they can uh, conform their processes to, 
as you mentioned before, Alonzo, this is not a requirement. No company is required to implement one of these frameworks. It's a it's an incentive. It is it is something that they can voluntarily decide to do if they want to get the benefit of the affirmative defense. And I think they it is especially geared towards small and medium size, although large size companies as well may may also take advantage of this. But that's square with your understanding. Yeah, Brian? that's that's absolutely correct. So Cyber Ohio generally was framed around the gap that Dennis identified. And so the educational tools uh, and that outreach and even the um, even the conference was was really targeted at it was open to everybody really targeted at raising the awareness of small and mid-sized enterprise because of the statistics that Dennis cited. Now, there's an interesting sort of conundrum built in, in the sense that, as Dennis points out, large organizations are sort of the best position to most immediately take advantage of this mm-hmm. because they already mm-hmm. have programs that should be very easy if they aren't already mapping to these um, these programs. Nonetheless, as Dennis also has said, it's the hope is this will get some attention of works best by creating an opportunity, a, re, a sort of high-profile opportunity in a sense, to educate internally if you're an in-house counsel or an outside counsel advising uh, one of these enterprises or a security firm you know, who's been asked to come in and do an assessment and say, hey, look, there may be some relatively easy things to do given your risk profile um, that would allow you to set yourself up for uh, this defense. And more importantly, th- you know, these are the roadmaps that are well-recognized. And so if right. you feel sort of at sea, you know, this is a good place to start. So I just wanted to add on to what Brian was saying. Uh, first of all, in terms of getting the word out, we're going to be having an event later today, which is the thing that brought us all together mm-hmm. uh, and uh, bring people to Ohio State to learn about this this law. So hopefully that will help to get the word out. And in terms of small and medium sized businesses, the law does specifically address their level of expertise and their level of resources. So. In looking at whether a company reasonably conforms to one of the 10 recognized cybersecurity frameworks, um, a court in determining whether the affirmative defense applies here uh, is supposed to look at the scale and scope of that company um, with respect to, you know, how many resources it has, what are the costs of uh, cybersecurity for that company. What is the level of sensitivity of the personal information that that company possesses? If it's more sensitive, obviously, you know, it's reasonable to make a greater investment. If it's less sensitive, it's reasonable to make a lesser investment. So there is a scale and scope dimension so that the the requirements or the, I should say, the standard for achieving the affirmative defense is not necessarily the same for every company. It is context specific based on the sensitivity of the information at stake and the resources and expertise of the company. But, but to that point, I mean, I, I know throughout the paper, and you mentioned it today, this concept of kind of scale and scope and reasonable conformity. Yeah. But um, I know the, the, the law has been on the books for a few months now, at least. Right. Um, has, has any of these concepts been tested, um, evaluated, opinions about the courts? I mean, how, do you, how does one kind of that's in a business in Ohio looking to kind of think about what are courts going to decide? What are the factors to consider? Has any of this been tested yet? So not specifically in the context of this law, but we deliberately picked reasonable conformity, um, conformity to give some flexibility, but reasonable because that's a test that judges and lawyers are familiar with, mm-hmm. right? It's essentially, um, I've heard some people describe it as a business judgment test, right? right. So there, 
although we're, we're inevitably in every individual case, there's going to be high fact specificity around what you did, especially in light of those factors that Dennis mentioned. Um, reasonableness is a is a concept that that judges are familiar with applying. Now, within the industry, the the frameworks themselves uh, and the scalability factors that Dennis mentioned are all um, are all aspects of these frameworks that industry professionals from the security side are familiar with. And so the expectation uh, of the Cyber Ohio Committee uh, was that at the end of the day, if and when one of these, uh, the defenses get, gets asserted at trial, you're probably going to need to bring in some of that expertise mm -hmm. to just explain to the judges, mm -hmm. uh, explain to a jury and, and, and the judge, you know, how this works um, and translate it into um, terms that they can understand. Right, right. Another thing to realize about the reasonably conform standard, this kind of reasonableness standard, is, you know, what does the affirmative defense do? It gives you a defense against a negligence action. Mm -hmm. Well, negligence actions essentially assert that you have not behaved reasonably, right? Right. Uh, you've been unreasonable and therefore negligent. You haven't taken due care. And so in a sense, this statutory standard requiring reasonable conformity to an established, recognized ind industry standard makes sense that it would then provide an affirmative defense to a negligence action since negligent actions are premised on unreasonableness. So in a sense, what, the, what the, the legislature is doing here is providing some content to what reasonableness means, what due care means in this context. And basically what it's saying is reasonable conformity with one of these established industry, recognized industry frameworks is you know, is reasonable due care. Now, people can debate whether that's the right standard, whether these industry frameworks are sufficiently protective. Um, but I do think there's a kind of a logic to it, this reasonable conformity standard as the basis for a defense to negligence actions in tort. And, and Dennis is absolutely correct. There is that you know, deliberate connection between the two in theory, at least, the, the expectation or the design of this, and it remains to, to be seen in, in the first or several cases, how it plays out, is that the standards actually create a uh, set of obligations that are higher than what you would be held to under a straightforward tort reasonable standard. Right. Now, I've, as a former litigator, I've always been a little bit skeptical of how you make that distinction practically with a jury. And as Dennis points out, conceptually, they're really tightly uh, tightly packed together. But at least in theory, the idea was if you assert the defense, you're taking on the burden of saying, hey, I did more than what was reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, and then you would still be, even if the jury uh, or the judge decided that, no, you didn't quite conform well enough, nonetheless, you might still have been reasonable in a tort sense. Right. Right. And I think it you know, remains to be seen how that plays out and how courts interpret reasonable conformity with these standards. If I'm looking at this from a plaintiff's perspective, my concern is Number one, if I bring this action, I've got to prove, I've got to show that the affirmative defense does not apply. The right. burden is going to be on the defendant to show that it does apply. But nonetheless, I've got to bring evidence to show that they did not reasonably conform. And then if I clear that hurdle, I've still got to prove negligence to, to establish my tort. If indeed the reasonable conformity and the negligence standards are very similar, then maybe there's actually a lot of overlap 
mm-hmm. between right. those two things. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have to do a lot additional. But I think, again, it's it's going to remain to be seen how this all plays out. Right, right. Right. And, and, and again, lots of interesting potential interplays there. But given that it's a technical concept anyways, defining what reasonable cybersecurity is, I, I think Dennis is absolutely correct. There's a sort of, uh, at least I would imagine, that it would be very easy for judges and juries to simply decide, hey, this really is, um, you know, what a reasonable standard. Which, again, if the assumption is correct that this is higher than maybe what a, what a theoretical tort standard could be, that might be to the good, right? right? It might be that we've de facto slightly raised the bar in Ohio. But again, we're sort of, you know, we're getting into deep technical. Right. One of the things I want to touch on now, you, I think, Dennis, you mentioned it earlier in your, your kind of summary of the law, and, and both of you kind of touched on this as well, is that the level of investment that may be required in order to comply with the various frameworks. Obviously, there's certain sort of industry-specific frameworks like HIPAA, what have you, but then that's just the reality of it is kind of complying with some of these laws and regulations is an investment that you that businesses need to make. And sometimes that investment can kind of, you know, they can be priced out about without, you know, going too, too high in, in the level of how, what level of compliance they're going to meet. So with that being said, I know at Microsoft, we make a tremendously huge investment around complying with a lot of the, the, the listed framework, all of the listed framework, quite frankly, that are in the, um, the um, act. Uh, won't belabor the the list, but of course, for the listeners, please review the uh, the the white paper and the legislation to kind of get the the kind of detailed list of the frameworks that are required. But that investment that Microsoft makes around um, having our cloud services be built to where um, any service any any customer that wants to come on to uh, our service as a service provider would be afforded the benefits of having their data being protected in that manner. I know in the white paper, you made some comments around the, the, the likely role that a cloud service provider could play in t- sort of complying with the law. So my simple question really is, simply by moving to a cloud service provider, does that necessarily, in your opinions, kind of make a uh, business well positioned to take advantage of the law? Or are there other, other things that need to happen for that? Um, Brian, I'll start with you. Sure. I, I mean, as Dennis mentioned, the, the target of the, of the law was small and mid-sized enterprises. But as we also said, the challenge is they're less well positioned to immediately take advantage of it because they don't have the sophisticated internal uh, capacity and they don't have the same resources. And so even before the, the law was passed, one of the things that you know, many cybersecurity experts had advised small businesses to do is to look to sophisticated third parties like cloud providers that could, in fact, do this job and, and protect the, your data um, in, in ways that you just wouldn't have the capacity if you're keeping the server you know, inside your shop or you know, inside your home, if you're a home business. And so absolutely, one of the things that, that we looked at and we, you know, and we examined closely was the extent to which some of the, especially larger cloud service providers that, that market themselves as having already complied with respect to their infrastructure uh, with these frameworks. You know, could that be a, a way that a small, mid-sized enterprise could begin to comply? Now, what we include is, it, you know, it's, it, it certainly could get you a long way there, depending on the extent to which you actually integrate, how fully you integrate mm-hmm. your infrastructure, in particular, obviously, uh, the pieces of your data infrastructure that, that in which you either host or through which uh, sensitive data flows. Um, so the short answer is yes, there seems to be a very viable option, uh, but it'll depend on who you are and exactly how you configure it. But absolutely, it'd be a great place to start. And just picking up on Brian said, it's a place to start and gets you most of the way there. But the mere fact that you are storing your data, a company storing its data with a major cloud provider that itself meets all of these 
standards doesn't mean that you necessarily qualify for the affirmative defense because you still have to make sure that any data, company still has to make sure that any data that it retains on site is protected and that it has the other types of controls, the physical and administrative controls, like access controls to its system and things like that, that, you know, are consistent with, uh, with the, you know, with the requirements to obtain this affirmative defense. So I would say it gets you a large part of the way there, but uh, there's still more that a, a company would need to do. M my understanding is that some of the cloud service providers will give companies information on what they need to do to complete the process mm -hmm. and, and achieve the affirmative defense. Right. Is that right? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, shameless plug, that's, that's right from a Microsoft perspective. We have mm -hmm. many tools and resources that any customer, be it small, large, medium-sized, what have you, can go and do their own sort of data um, impact assessment and sort of compliance kind of hygiene needed for their own internal organization. As you both know, there's a lot of control sets and requirements and, and that, that, a, that a business would need to implement in itself to kind of meet these standards. But let alone, there's a documentation requirement as well to show that you have these things in place. So Microsoft has tools that we, we allow our, our customers just free, free of charge. One example is compliance manager. Organization can go online to their profile and kind of see all the control sets for various ISO standards, HIPAA what have you, and to kind of see the, the enumerated control sets sort of um, take their own kind of um, assessment um, um, Q&A, and they can come out with an assessment score with a security or compliance score, and then be shown where the gaps are, right? So they can go ahead and say, hey, look, there's these five or six, whatever the number is, things that need to be done before I can show kind of true conformity with some of these regulations. So I'm sure that type of tool will be a useful a resource for again back to the investment category because again you could as I think was mentioned earlier you can go pay a third party organization to kind of come in and do an org uh, an assessment or you can kind of get yourself a long way there in terms of making your own evaluation and determination of where you are um, with that so short answer to your question is yes and and I believe that's a truly a role that a particularly a hyperscale service provider you know can play in taking advantage of the Ohio Data Protection Act I I, I want to shift gears a little bit. I mean, and we talked, I mean, I think we, we've mentioned this, 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 this concept of data and information. I know in, in some regulations, again, particularly industry standard regulations, that they only apply to certain types of data, like HIPAA, obviously, protected health information, for an example. Is there any sort of requirement or kind of construct or restriction around the types of data or information that's covered by this, by this uh, legislation? So I'll start with you. The protected information was actually expanded during the legislative process, in part through, because of input from some larger organizations in the state who recognized that, that traditionally defined um, personally identifiable information, PII or, or EPHI, uh, was too limited given you know, where we're headed, and especially with, um, with IODT devices coming online, the, both the scale of data that's available and the ways in which that data can be put together to actually identify you is much larger. And so there was a, there was a traditional personal information which is drawn from Ohio's Breach Notification Act, so that definition gets imported. But then it was added, this broader definition of restricted information, and I'll just read it, includes any information that alone or in combination with other information, including personal information, can be used to distinguish or trace the individual's identity or that is linked or linkable to an individual. There's a little bit more to that. But in essence, that draws from 
this these more um, expansive set of second generation laws that Dennis mentioned uh, within the United States. The California Act is sort of the most expansive and has a similar kind of definition, uh, but that is drawn actually from work that's been done in Europe and the European uh, General Data Protection Regulation, which has that, not exactly the same, but the idea that, hey, look, there's sensitive information that we that in itself might not be, but could be combined. Mm -hmm. And Dennis is, is more of an expert on that than I am. So I'll, I'll just say, I, I do think that notion of restricted information, that is information from which a person could be identified, as opposed to information that already identifies them. That's the personally identified, that's the, the personal information under the Data Protection Act here. Uh, that broader category of, re of re restricted information certainly does relate um, and is very consistent with uh, the way that personally identifiable information is being um, considered today under the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe uh, by courts and under you know statutes here in the United States. So I think it it it, it fits with the current trend in what is regulated, what is considered personal information. But but the interesting twist here is, of course, as an as an affirmative incentive, what that does in this context is expand the scope of situations where the affirmative defense is available, as opposed to uh, in the instance of the California Act, where it expands the scope of the regulatory obligation. Again, both acts are designed to incentivize uh, organizations to try to protect those kinds of data. The effect is just different. Okay. Okay. Uh, again, shifting gears, I want to, I know we talked a little bit about kind of reasonable conformity, scope, scale, about how uh, one, a business would go about implementing sort of a uh, cybersecurity program. Is there any certification requirements that are, are needed to, to show, like, you know, how does one go about proving this necessarily in court if this was to come up? Is there you know, self-certification, third-party certifications? Uh, Brian, can you say a couple words about that? Sure. So two points on that. So first, the law itself does not require any formal certification, and that was a deliberate choice. Uh, the sense was that some of these certifications, where they're available, and they are available under some of the frameworks, uh, they can be quite expensive, and we did not want to require that. We also didn't want to kind of create a uh, a, a captive industry or an industry that you had to, um, to rely on. Uh, that said, in many instances, it might well be worthwhile to pursue those certifications where they're available, or in the alternative, at least to have an independent third party do an attestation, so not a formal certification under one of these uh, frameworks, but an expert who understands the frameworks and can look at your program and say, yes, uh, in our estimation, uh, at least at this point in time, you have reasonably conformed mm -hmm. uh, for these reasons. And of course, what's interesting about that, when those get done, it's not, again, it's not a, it's not a black or white yes or no. It is, you have reached this level uh, and, and you may get an attestation that says that that should be deemed reasonably to have reasonably conformed, but there's always a good assessment. It will always say, here are your strengths, here are your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Right. Down the and the other advantage to a certification is that you have an expert looking at your entire system. And I think that's an important feature for good cybersecurity uh, so that um, there's an audit, so that there is a systematic look at the entire, you know, data system for that company um, and that it is done periodically because the nature of information that companies collect and process 
the uh, makeup of these cybersecurity frameworks will be continually evolving and changing. So it's important that this not be just a one-time you know, effort to reasonably conform, but, but that be done over time. And of course, you know, it doesn't have to be a certification process, but cybersecurity experts and professionals will have all that latest information and then they can, you know, very effectively, one hopes, um, do that type of systematic audit, uh, which really leads a cybersecurity framework to be effective and people's data to be protected. Right, right. Again, we're we're um, here discussing uh, the white paper entitled "Promoting Better Cybersecurity: An Analysis of the Ohio Data Protection Act," um, authored by uh, Dennis Hirsch um, from the Ohio State University Mortz College of Law, and Brian Ray, uh, professor of law at uh, Cleveland Marshall College of Law. Um, both of you, gentlemen, I thank you for your time. But I also want to talk a little bit about as we kind of wrap this um, discussion is sort of what's next. I mean, obviously, you all being um, in academia, you have uh, what is, you know, obviously a broad, broad swath view of kind of what's out there, what's coming, kind of um, sort of a, a hypothesis of, of, of the direction and what have you. So I'll leave it to both of you to, to kind of what's next. Are there other states thinking about doing similar legislation? Do we see some sort of potential federal legislation of this type of just just a couple words about what's next in your mind? So we've had a diversity of cybersecurity data you know, uh, data security breach laws for some time, and we have not seen federal preemption or a federal law there. Doesn't mean it couldn't happen, uh, but but uh, but we haven't seen that. Um, the California law certainly has gotten a lot of attention on many fronts, so we may see more states taking that approach uh, of you know private right of action and and kind of potentially very large fines. Um, there's been some interest in the Ohio approach uh, from some other states. And so depending on, you know, how this gets implemented, whether it's deemed to be a success, whether in fact it does lead companies to uh, invest more in cybersecurity and, and, and that is the intent, but we'll kind of have to see how this actually plays out over the next few years. Um, it's possible that the Ohio law could become a model uh, that, that a number or, or a significant number of other states address. And then we've got the third model of kind of state laws that that impose some cybersecurity requirements like the Massachusetts or New York law. Um, so I, it will be I, it'll be interesting to see, you know, which of these three models right now uh, becomes more influential and prevalent in the states. Maybe a fourth, you know, will emerge. Um, but but I think we need to uh, study how each of these approaches is working, see what's most successful and learn from them. And certainly the Ohio uh, experiment, if I can call it that, is an innovative and interesting one uh, that bears uh, further attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. As Dennis mentioned, um, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of activity um, at the federal level, which which has been driven uh, in large part by uh, GDPR and state laws like California that impose these obligations. Industry, especially multinationals, have come to terms with the GDPR obligations, and now they're looking for some uh, greater certainty, uh, and they would prefer to have a federal law that preempts the state laws, you know, even if it takes on some of the aspects of GDPR. Of course, many of them would prefer not that it not go as far as GDPR or California. There was a hearing um, in the Senate 
just yesterday, I think, where the uh, Federal Trade Commissioner split along party lines over the preemption question. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the big stumbling block. But there's a there, you know, there's we're probably as close as we have gotten to um, a potential federal law, but we're we're still pretty far away, given right. that given that issue. Uh, in that context, I agree with Dennis. You know, we're going to see these these state models um, begin to evolve, and I expect over a long period of time we'll probably see some move towards some kind of convergence around these. But it, I think absolutely it's useful to have Ohio be out there with a different model. Uh, I heard in one of the recent hearings uh, a proposal um, by um, an industry group to have a safe harbor mm -hmm. federal style law, a uh, safe harbor that in fact would be much, probably much more protective than the Ohio. But but it's interesting to see how these are percolating and they're, they're definitely two different kinds of models. Uh, it'd be great to do some kind of empirical analysis. I don't know how you would exactly go about it, but to see if in fact one or the other is, is having a greater effect. But nonetheless, uh, I think in the aggregate, there's clearly uh, much greater awareness and understanding around the need to do this. And it's, you know, it's important that states are, are taking, taking these kinds of steps. Right. Well, again, gentlemen, thank you for your time. It was a, it's a great discussion. And look, hopefully we, uh, we continue to pave the way or Ohio continues to pave the way on how cybersecurity is viewed across the world. So thank you again. Thank you, Alonzo. Thank you, Alonzo. Pleasure. To learn more, visit go.osu.edu slash ODPA to review the first comprehensive analysis of the ODPA created by the Moritz College of Law Program on Data Governance and the Cleveland Marshall University Center for Cybersecurity and Privacy Protection.